EMS World Expo is the largest EMS dedicated event in the world, and it's taking you places. And now we bring you stories from Expo. Hi, Chris Call, uh, host here at EMS Garage. We're at the 2019 EMS World Expo and doing stories from EMS Expo. And I'm here with Dave, Dave Olvera. How you doing? It's good to be here. You are a fascinating guy. <laughs> and you have a lot of background on a lot of different things. I do. Um, but one of them is in the aeromedical world. So tell me again your, a little bit of your background sure. and your title and what you're doing right now. Okay. So uh, my career really started, I uh, was an EMT and then I went into the military, became a uh, medic in the Army. Uh, quickly went into the tactical medic side and, was, and joined a military police unit and worked with them. Uh, soon after uh, I got out of the military, I said, I want to be a, a full-term paramedic on the civilian side. So I went to paramedic school. And during that time, I became a research assistant at the University of Arizona under Dr. John Sackles. So uh, for a pretty long time now, we've been working together on airway research and different things. It just really interests me. I, I missed my first innovation, and I went to him and asked him, yeah. what can I do? And so that's how it happened. And then uh, I've been flying with Air Methods. Uh, I've been with the company for almost uh, a little over 12 years. Mm -hmm. Uh, started as a flight medic in Wilcox, Arizona, uh, and then got into education. Uh, and then uh, I was a clinical education manager up until about a few weeks ago, and now I'm the uh, director of clinical research for Air Methods. That's awesome. Uh, congratulations. Thank you. By the way, yeah. one of the things I've, uh, I've actually have heard you speak on a number of fascinating topics, but before we get into those topics, sure. we're starting just now, starting to see that we're at least asking the question. Should we be providing this care or that care? And then the answer is, I don't know. Yeah. And then we step back and we have this thing in EMS, which is fairly new, called research. Yep. <laughs> right? Like, let's just take a look at the facts and then let's make an educated decision. Absolutely. So talk to me about your, uh, I guess, your journey in research Absolutely. and then what you're seeing as the industry as a whole. Right. So I, I attribute it back to my kids in a way that they reminded me how I got into this. And it was asking why. And so I was never happy with the answer of we do it because this is how we've always done it. Mm -hmm. Or I was never happy with do it because that's what's it's in the textbook. And so I want to know why. Why is it happening? What's going on with it? And so I just kept doing that. I kept asking people why, why. I kept asking Dr. Sackles, why do we do this? I kept asking my instructors, why do we do that? And a lot of times we had evidence-based practice answers if I went to specific people. But the other ones I couldn't. And so I said... Well, I want an answer. And so, um, like, my, my recent why was push those pressers. And okay. so everyone wants to do it. Everyone's doing it. But I said, why and what? And what's the best medication? Or is it really working on how we want it to? And so right. I went, why, why, why? That we were able to get a grant to secure. It was a grant that we actually, within our company, are doing yeah. a, a study on push those pressers right now to answer that why. And to be able to answer for not just us, but for everybody to, to have a clue on, this is why we're doing it. And this is why I should work in medicine for us to do it, or don't do it, like you said. Exactly. That maybe this isn't the best idea. So let's uh, we're gonna thumbtack because sure. I want to talk about a couple of the different research projects you've been involved in. Yeah. But and then so the follow-up question with that is, when it comes to research, are you seeing a change? Are you seeing people adopt? Are you seeing this idea of uh, at least asking why more Absolutely. often? Absolutely. With the advancement of podcasts, phone med, all those different things, I think that was a catalyst to understand that the evidence-based research is there and the evidence-based practice is there. And so building that and allowing that to come into play has really allowed those people that were afraid to ask why 
maybe in not a public forum per se, but they were able to type on Twitter and say, why does this happen? And have the leading experts in what they do answer why. And then I had never thought of that question. You know, maybe we should look into it and build the research and right, add to that. Exactly. And so um, with part of that, we've built what's called the Out of Operating Room Airway Consortium, where we found that the uh, adverse events in the emergency department, in the ICU, and the pre-hospital setting are relatively close in our terms of our intubation attempts. And so we've built that and said, you know what? We're different, but we're the same. Yep. And help kind of bring that together. So that why built relationships and built friendships to now expand our knowledge base and realize that this is all there. So let's get into some of these. Sure. Um, and we'll, let's pick three. Okay. And it can be from when you were doing your uh, research fellowship during your paramedic schooling. Sure. It can be something you're working on right now. It can be one of the presentations that was this week. Okay. But let's pick three. Uh, sure. Let's start with Christos Epi. Okay. So, uh, yeah. So, Pushdos Epi. So, we actually decided uh, not to use Epi for our Pushdos pressers. And what we found is a couple things is the um, the band of oxygen that you use with, the cardi with Epi, uh, you know, with, the, with that whole part of it that... Your patient's already striving for air, and now you're using epi, you're pulling that oxygen out of there, you're making it worse. So we found that there were some uh, abnorma abnormalities with that. I think there's a paper actually coming out soon talking about that. And the other thing we did is when we saw a literature review, more times than not, we found that people were drawing and pulling from the wrong vial of epi. And so there was a error just because of a medication error of drawing. Uh, instead of drawing from one vial, they're drawing from, you know, from the 1 to 10,000 instead of the 1 to 1,000 and whatnot. So yeah. there was a lot of issues with that. And it wasn't just in the pre-hospital. It was in the emergency medicine world and it was other places. And there's been documented papers on this that we said, that's a safety issue at that point. We need to be careful with that. So, For those who may not be aware, uh, talk to me about what Christos sure. pressures is, just high level. Sure. Um, so what we've done in our paper, what we're looking at is that's called the peri-intubation arrest. So uh, our prior research, we were able to find that we can find a, a, when a patient's going to go into cardiac arrest when we're intubating, when they have a systolic blood pressure uh, hit 80 and their end tidal CO2 drops to 24, when they hit that inflection point, you have about five to seven minutes before they go into cardiac arrest. And so it's that before intubation or peri-intubation phase. Uh, we studied shock index, reverse shock index. We, we studied a bunch of different factors, and the most uh, opportune one we found is the combination of those two, and that inflection point, you have five minutes to figure something out. So that really was able to, to stabilize the why and to justify it. And so we looked at the medication and said, what can we use in terms of the presser as a, as a bridge? And we found that there was a couple of options with it that we wanted to kind of explore and uh, we did literature searches on that so our medicine side and uh, you know back to what push dose presses are it's a bridge basically to get us from the point that we're the patient's decompensating to buy us enough time to make sure that we can secure the airway and complete the resuscitation Correct. and then after that we can do blood products long-term pressors fluid resuscitation and whatnot like that so it's kind of a bridge bridge the gap right and so historically it's been diluting epi mm -hmm. and giving a little bit of epi just enough kick right to increase absolutely and so what is your findings so again we, we we did we chose not to put epi into our study uh we have an irb approved study that we're using phenylephrine for the medical side mm -hmm. and vasopressin for the trauma side which is really crazy because yeah. people kind of like fall back and go wait what and so if you when we did our literature review we found on the on the vasopressin side because it works in the splenic artery and it pulls and brings that blood back in that uh Anesthesiology in the U.S. and across the across the world has been using vasopressin or terlipressin, which is the stepbrother to vasopressin but shorter acting, hmm. uh, in the OR all the time. And it's just something that we had never considered as little bumps right. in availability to do so. 
And so we've had some great success with that. And then on the other side, with the medical side, yep. we did phenylephrine because we felt it was the safest medication in terms of looking at all the, uh, the effects and the, all the things that could happen that would still potentially benefit the patient but not have any, uh, have a low reactive uh, issues with it. And so the one that, you know, is predominant is possible rebound bradycardia. And we found little, very little opportunity of wow. that in our use of the, of the push dose pressure so far. Let's take another one. Sure. Uh, ketamine. <laughs> Big topic, hot yeah. topic. Yeah. Everybody's like, I don't even know. Oh, that's only used in third world countries too. Right. Now we eat it for candy <laughs> in the morning. We have it in our yeah. cereal. We have it in our lunch or dinner. Right. Oh, wait, you're an asthmatic. On and on, so yeah. ketamine. Yeah, so ketamine's great. So it's a very interesting medication. I was a huge fan when we first started using it. Uh, I uh, went to a lecture uh, by Ruben Strayer, and he put out the uh, ketamine brain continuum, and it really helped me understand the levels and why we're doing what we do with it. So we have the sedative part of it where we do like a conscious sedation. Then we have the recreational part of it, you know, and that's where we find the people on the side of the road that are, you know, kind of out of it but still breathing. Then we have the semi-disassociative and the full disassociation. So what we found in some of our research is that we don't always give that full dose. And I don't mean to say go big or go home, but when we're doing it for RSI purposes, we get them to that semi-disassociative point. But we don't always get them all the way through to the full end of it. And so that's been kind of a controversy and discussion on our side of it. The other thing is, you know, the, the big hype with it, I would say, for the RSI part is that it's supposed to raise blood pressure. It's supposed to uh, help with uh, with uh, hypoxia. It's supposed to pretty much be the wonder drug to kind of get us going with things. Well, uh, after five years of using the medication, uh, we use uh, ketamine and we use Atomidate as our choices for sedatives. And we found that after five years, the numbers didn't change. Hmm. And our lines of how it looks stayed about the same. There was no real change when you looked at the two medications in comparison over five years. And so the biggest thing was like, wait, Ketamine is supposed to raise your blood pressure, and everyone goes, ketamine is my way to go to raise blood pressure. And we found that uh, our study didn't show that, and we thought about it for a couple of reasons. And one is selection bias. So when I walk up to my patient, I look at them, I go, man, that guy's sick, he needs ketamine. And so what's happened to that patient's catecholamines, where are they at in their reserves? They're probably completely depleted. So it's like trying to start a car without a key. It's not going to happen. You need to have that key. And so we think that's a big factor in it, and mm -hmm. also just... Um, the, the high shock or the high stress patients that have already kind of used the catecholamine use, right. just, it isn't there to change. make it happen. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's, it was a shock, uh, but it was, uh, but it was interesting, but it has, and it absolutely has its effects, you know, in terms of depression, PTSD, pain management. You know, I think it, this could be part of that bridge to solution of the opioid crisis. There's numerous papers that say that the use of ketamine can help either in conjunction or in place of some of our narcotics that we oh, use. Wow, yeah. So it's like, you know, this could be that bridge, but again, you know, it has its recreational downfalls also. So we kind of have to be careful in balancing that and controlling it. Give me one more example for medicine and clinical research that's been near and dear to your heart. Sure. So we rolled out this idea called the heaven criteria. So we were looking at the lemon mnemonic and um, as valid and great as it is in the operating room, we found that it didn't quite have the same. And for the, for the audience. Sure. Yep. <laughs> uh, so lemon criteria is an assessment tool to um, evaluate the airway before we intubate to see if it's going to be difficult. Perfect. Right. And we found that in evaluation of research and literature and documentation, it works great in the operating room. It's incredible. But 
the difficulty is when you get to the emergent airway, we don't always have the opportunity to do some of the things that are asked. For instance, a melon potty scale. Yep. So melon potty, traditionally the patient's supposed to be sitting in a chair, relaxed and responsive and, and answering commands. They're supposed to open their mouth and you're supposed to look in their mouth. Which is great before, when they haven't eaten for 12 hours, right. they're going into surgery Absolutely. that they know about for weeks and they're talking to their anesthesiologist, right? Yeah. That's the classic example. Right. Exactly. And then you put that into EMS and say, that's awesome. Yeah. And you're like, but our patient isn't that patient profile. Right. Got I can't it. like lean over my patient and be like, sir, open your mouth. You're in a C caller, I know. So we kind of we, we kind of found that was one issue. Uh, and then we found the 332 rule of putting the patient, patient's fingers in their mouth. So it's weird to have you have put the patient's fingers in their mouths and, and assess that tool. And the accuracy can be kind of complicated, especially with a patient who's maybe not responsive. So uh, we looked at five years worth of data and um, we looked at some research and found that there was documented evidence for the, uh, the OR. There was a little bit for the ER that said, this is something worth trying in terms of lemon. And then what we said is, okay, well, let's find something that's better. So when our five years worth of data, we looked at what things do we fail at? And so uh, we had six things that happen and that's what we call the heaven criteria. So the first one's hypoxemia. The next one is extremes of size. The third one is anatomic disruption obstruction. The fourth one is vomit, blood, fluid. The fifth one is exsanguination. The last one is neck mobility. These are why we fail at airway management. And so what we did is we did a lot of scientific regressive analysis. We looked at all of our data over the years. We've implemented it. We have about five papers or four papers out right now. We were able to actually determine with our statistical research when we should use a video and when we should use direct. Mm. And so we are now confident that when we see these patients, you're probably going to have better success if you go down that road. Now, there's always that abnormality or there's right, always that one-off, so there's always going to be that change, but we're very confident in what yes. we figured out and making that happen. The, the great part about this is that it's been picked up by the, uh, the, fl the flight world. Um, ASNA has it in their Principles and Practice book. Uh, PHTOS has adopted it for the ninth edition. Oh, great. It's being used internationally. I have friends uh, in Latin America that have used it. Uh, and coincidentally, Heaven translates to Heaven in Spanish also. So it translated equally for them as well. So it's, I get phone calls and emails and Facebook posts all the time like, oh my gosh, this is so great. This is exactly what I need. And so we have actually, at my company at Air Methods, we have removed lemon from our criteria and we put heaven in as our, as our main indicator for assessment. Man, Dave, this is great because you asked the question why. And because of that, uh, outcomes are improving. Absolutely. Uh, thank you for that. Absolutely. We appreciate it. And there are probably people out there who also want to get into research Absolutely, and yeah. to do this. And so this is just an encouragement that there are avenues to study medicine and, and change our history of patient care. Yeah. It takes a lot of no's to get a yes, but it's worth it in the end. And where we're at today in terms of pre-hospitals, because a lot of people were told no, and we finally proved them that we can do this and say yes. And so don't be uh, afraid, you know, of, you know, where you are. If I'm you know, I've heard people say, well, I'm just an EMT. That doesn't matter. There's PhDs that are EMTs, and so yep. bridge that gap. And don't be afraid to use that schooling to, to understand evidence-based practice and answer that question, why? Great words of wisdom. Thanks, Dave. Thanks so much.